You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn, first of all, from our Old Testament reading to Isaiah 8, beginning at verse 18, to chapter 9, verse 7. And there the word of our God says as follows, Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then we turn to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 1, 26 to 38. In the six months, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child, give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, 
And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. As the Catechism works its way through the Apostles' Creed, we have come this afternoon to Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism dealing with the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? The eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus he is also the true seed of David, and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin, in which I was conceived and born. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, there are many things in life that fill us with awe. Travel to Whistler, take the gondola up the mountain and transfer to the peak to peak chair. And on a clear day, the views will take your breath away. Or if you happen to be a classical music lover, book some seats at one of the performances of the Vancouver Symphony. The music will transport you. Or experience the birth of a new baby, as some of you have been doing of late, and it will be something beyond words or description. In short, life is filled with so many dazzling, stunning, and inspiring events, events that are filled with wonder, beauty, and indescribable emotion. There is no limit to the surprises. Yes, and this is also what the Heidelberg Catechism has been dealing with of late. It too, you can say, has been dabbling in wonders. Specifically, it has been exploring and relating the wonder of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Last time in Lord's Day 13, we were confronted with the wonder of his Godhead. The Catechism, following the order of the Apostles' Creed, explained what those biblical expressions of Jesus as the only Son, the one and the only, the only begotten Son meant. And it's said that they declare that Jesus is the eternal, natural Son of God. So our Savior is, to put it shortly, a divine Savior. He is God. He is the Son of God. He has been and always will be clothed in the power and glory of the Godhead. Now that's quite something, beloved. 
to think that we have, you and I have, a divine Savior, to know that the one who redeems us is truly and fully God, that's an awesome thought. Only notice the wonder of his person doesn't stop here. For today, we move on to Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism, the next part of the Apostles' Creed, and you can say we confronted with another wonder of his person. Jesus Christ, it says here, is not just truly God. He's also fully man. He's not just over us, above us, better than us. He is also like us, with us, comparable to us. As human beings, we have a Savior who is both God and man in the one person. And that's glorious news. That's the most awe-inspiring truth. Indeed, those of us who believe in him would say that surely this ranks among the greatest of all miracles, the highest of all wonders, the most unspeakable of all developments. To think that we have a Savior who is God and at the same time of our flesh and blood, who knows this life fully, knows all about its ups and downs, its struggles, its joys, and its griefs. What a wonder that is. And it's a wonder that deserves some further exploration. So I preached here this afternoon on a great and mighty wonder, the conception and birth of our Savior. And let's first of all consider together the wonder declared, then the need explained, and finally the blessing embraced. Well, beloved, you may have noticed, but you have to be a fairly keen analyst or reader, you may have noticed that Lord's Day 14 takes a slightly different approach than Lord's Days 12 and 13. You know, up until now, the questions have all started with why. Why is the Son of God called Jesus? Why is he called Christ? Why are you called a Christian? Why is he called God's only begotten Son? Why is he called our Lord? It's all why, why, and more why. But notice, in Lord's Day 14, we are suddenly no longer confronted with the why, but with the what. And I'm not quite sure why. I suspect the teacher wants to change the approach. It may even be that all of those whys came originally from his students, and and after all, the students are very good, usually, at asking a teacher why this or why that. But now the tables are turned and the teacher pipes up and we know that teachers are usually pretty good at asking what questions. What does this mean? Or what are the implications of this or that? And so in particular, the teacher now is speaking and the teacher asks, what do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? Now that's quite a question. And we might even want to remark it's unfair. You can't expect students to be able to answer a question like that. Why, even theologians have enough trouble answering and responding properly to it. And that may be true enough, but you know, it never hurts to challenge 
your students. It never hurts to get them to try to stretch their minds, as it were, and to use a little more of that gray matter. It never hurts to put them to the test. And you know, that's what the teacher actually does when he asks, what do you confess when you say? He challenges them about the mystery of the birth and the humanity of our Savior. Yes, and no doubt, as he does so, for teachers are wont to do that as well, he he helps them, he gives them some hints, he kind of leads them in a certain biblical direction. And so what answer do they finally cobble together from the Word of God but this, the eternal Son of God who is and remains true and eternal God took upon himself through human nature. Now, that's quite an answer. It's deep, it's careful, it's biblical. Together, the teacher and the students, and no doubt with more than just a little bit of help from church history, declare that Jesus Christ is both God and man. It starts then with this very basic confession. But notice more gets added. There is the fact that Jesus has to be the eternal Son of God. You find that in this answer as well. After all, if you're a good student of Scripture, you remember that Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. I think most of us recognize that as incorrect grammar. It should be, before Abraham was born, I was. But notice, it's I am. It's a claim of divinity. The I am who I am, the Yahweh, the God of the Scriptures. And then there's also the fact that he is and remains true and eternal God. You know, some people claim that he left his divinity behind in heaven and that he came down to earth as simply a man. Others say that he was never divine, either in heaven or on earth or anywhere else. Yet Peter says to his face, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Thomas confesses him to be my Lord and my God. And John says he's the Word incarnate. And Matthew records Jesus as saying, I am with you always. To the very end of the age. So Jesus isn't God for just a little while. Or for a certain period of time. This is not something that was given to him for a few years and then taken away from him. No, he is and he remains God. He has always been God and he always will be. God. Now, if you think that's hard to grasp, then you have to try to get your mind around the next part, which is even, in some ways, more incomprehensible. For he who is eternally divine, it says, in addition, took upon himself true human nature. 
Where does that come from? Well, we, we read it, for example, in, in Philippians chapter 2. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness or form. Notice, Jesus took upon himself our nature. He did it. He himself did it. It wasn't done to him. It wasn't done for him. No, he did it voluntarily, willingly. Out of his very own love and choosing. He became man. Fully, completely man. How did that happen? Well, the teacher and the students aren't finished. For they dig around a bit more in the Bible and they come to Mary. And they conclude finally that Jesus came from the flesh and the blood of Mary. That's how he came into this world. Of course, you may ask, well, where does that come from? And you find it, of course, in Matthew 1, but especially in Luke chapter 1. And then you may know the critics are quick to say, yeah, but that's not quite good enough. Here you have this huge, incomprehensible wonder, and it's based on only two places in Holy Scripture. It needs a lot more proof than that. Does it? Does it really? You know, the Sermon on the Mount is found in only one gospel, Matthew. Pieces of it are found in Luke, of course, but really it only comes down to, to one gospel, Matthew. And, and no one, no one ever questions the veracity or the accuracy of the Sermon on the Mount. Even though it's only really in one gospel. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, as mentioned in two gospels, that's not good enough. That's what we call rather selective prejudicial reading. People, Some people don't like this birth because they can't understand it or explain it or get their minds around it. It belongs to the realm of the miraculous. And you know, that's something that really, really bothers some people, this business of the miraculous. They just can't seem to cope with that aspect. But look, Mary, Mary can. The angel comes to her and explains to her what's going to happen to her. And, and she asks how. And the angel explains about the Holy Spirit. And then what does Mary say next? Does she say, well, just a minute here. I need some time to think about this. And I'd like you to explain that to me in some more detail. And I have a question about this, and I have a question about that, and, and, and I really need a lot more information before I'm going to make this kind of commitment. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? We probably do that. But Mary doesn't. Mary says, may it be to me as you have said. And then, of course, once again, there are the critics who say, "Ah, but a very simple Mary and a very simple confession. It couldn't have happened in this way. 
She would never have responded in this kind of a manner. But why is that so hard? Mary may be young, but she's not dumb. She knows her Bible. You go through her song in the verses 46 to 53 of of Luke 1, and you see how she knows the Scriptures. And in connection with that, she knows all about biblical births. And just how surprising and miraculous they can be. She knows about Eve, the mother of all living. She knows about Sarah, who's a pensioner having a baby. She knows about Rebecca. She knows about the wife of Manoah. She knows about Hannah and all this trouble with Peninnah and you name it. She knows about the predictions of Isaiah that one day a virgin will conceive and bear a son. You see, the Old Testament is populated with surprising and miraculous births. And Mary sees herself as belonging to these surprising mothers in Israel. But of course, in her case, it's more than just a surprise. It's also a mighty miracle. It's a miracle worked, it says, by the Holy Spirit, the teacher And the students don't miss that. It's so obvious. It's their time and time again, for example, in Luke 1. First, the angel tells Zachariah that he and Elizabeth who are going to have a son. And and they give, or the angel gives him the, the great news, this son's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But then the angel comes to Mary and says, the Holy Spirit is going to do more for her than just fill her son. He's going to come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. In one way or another, you see, Mary is told that the Spirit is not just going to fill her son. The Spirit will conceive her son. He'll work new, glorious life in her. He'll do something utterly radical, totally unheard of and utterly shattering. The Holy Spirit will conceive the Son of God. And notice that's it. No further explanation is offered. No more details are given. No medical or scientific description is attached. This is something that you need to accept and embrace in faith. And that's what Mary did. And that's what you and I are supposed to do as well. As believers, you and I need to be prepared to live with the miraculous. You know, while God gives us answers to many questions, while he reveals much and allows us to unearth much, there are some things that remain private. God doesn't tell you and I everything. That's partly because he's God. And we're not. 
We are among those who do not, for example, see the risen Christ. And yet, thanks to the Holy Spirit, we believe. We're among those who can't figure out the conception and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ either. And yet, thanks to the Holy Spirit, we believe. Together with the teacher and the students... We need to be satisfied with the explanation. The eternal Son of God took upon himself the true human nature from the flesh and the blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. That's all you get to know for now. Maybe later on, I don't know. Maybe later on God will tell you more in the life to come. But that's it for now. The spirit of life conceives the Lord of life. What a wonder. But then, of course, beloved, it's more than simply a wonder to enjoy. It's also a wonder with a why attached to it. For the question may arise, and the students may have asked this as well, why could Jesus not have been born in the normal way? Why could he not have been the son of Mary and Joseph? Why such a roundabout kind of birth? And notice the teacher responds, first of all, by saying, well, you know, there is the matter of David. In the Old Testament, one of God's greatest, clearest, and most repeated promises is that David is one day going to receive a great son who's going to sit on an eternal throne. God promised that in 2 Samuel 7. He repeats it in 2 Samuel 23, Psalm 87, Psalm 132, Isaiah 55. Over time, it becomes clear that when the Messiah comes, he's going to come not just as the Son of Man, the Son of God, but also as the Son of David. Yes, and that explains the presence of both Mary and Joseph. To be of David's line, of David's flesh and blood, a descendant of David will need to give him birth. And that's Mary. Verse 27 says she is a descendant of David. To be of David's line, Jesus will also need to be the legal son of David. And that's where Joseph comes in. It's through Joseph that Jesus gains his legal rights and standing. So Jesus becomes both the natural and the legal son of David. And so the first reason for his birth has to do with with David. But you know, behind all of that business with, with David, there is something else even more fundamentally important, and that is what this says about God's faithfulness. Through his promises to David, God shows to his people that he sticks to his word, that he keeps his covenant, that he's utterly reliable and dependable no matter how many centuries it takes. If this promise to David comes true as it did, 
we can be sure that all of his promises to us will come to as well. For you and I have a God who delivers, who comes through, who performs, who can be trusted. But of course, that's not all that's at stake here. It's not just a matter of God keeping his word to David and showing his faithfulness. It's also a matter of something else. And you can say it's it's a matter, and this probably is something the teacher tried to explain to his students as well. It's a matter of similarity and, and dissimilarity. First, we need a Savior. That's first. We need a Savior who's, who's really powerful. Because we got a big problem. But we also need a Savior who is somehow familiar with, with us and our life and our existence and his character. He has to be similar to us, in other words. Otherwise he, he can't know this. He has to be just as human as we are. He doesn't need to be Superman. He doesn't need to travel faster than a speeding bullet or leap off tall buildings or be able to fly. No, he needs to be like us. Like us even, I dare say, with limitations, feelings, emotions, longings, desires. He needs to know what it's like to be a toddler, a teenager, a young adult, a mature person. He needs to know all about life's struggles and temptations and burdens and cares. He needs to be us. If he's really going to redeem us. So he needs to be like us. But at the same time, he also needs to be, let's be honest, better than we are, right? Higher. Abler, if you will. We, we don't need a second Adam who's going to drop the ball like the first Adam. What we need is an Adam who can run with the ball all the way across the goal line. And so the teacher adds and explains one more qualification in his answer to his students, and it's short. It's even simple. But it's also necessary, fundamental, and absolutely important. And it are those words that come at the end of question and answer 35. Yet without sin. Yet without sin. And there you have the answer to the virgin birth. It's all about God giving us a sinless, stainless, pollution-free Redeemer. It's about a true man, yes, but also a truly righteous man. Go back to Lord's Day 6. We need a true man. It says there, because the justice of God requires the same human nature which has sin should pay for sin. Fine. We need a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. 
An animal can't pay for us. A sinner can't pay for other sinners. We need a true and sinless mediator. Yes, and that, says the teacher, is now what God, in His great wisdom, gives to us. Our God and Father gives us the perfect solution for our sins in and through His Son. And in Him we have the best of all worlds. We've got holiness and power in Him. We've got identity and sinlessness in Him as well. We have it all. You know, almost... Every other religion and cult in this world, whether it be Roman Catholicism, Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnessism, teach that salvation is something that you and I can work. By our good deeds, by our righteous efforts, by our pious commitments, even by imitating Jesus Christ, we can earn salvation. You ask somebody a question, why should God let you into heaven? Well, because I'm good, or I'm trying to be good. But that's not the biblical answer. The true road is the road of faith. In Jesus Christ as the great Savior who alone is able to earn the salvation of His people. The true road is the road of grace which acknowledges that God's salvation is fundamentally undeserved, unearned, unmerited, freely given thanks to God's splendid mercy. The true road is the road of the Spirit who comes in us, lives in us, and enables us to do what we could never do without Him or without Christ. You see, salvation, that's God's work through and through, through Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of David. Oh, and just before the teacher wraps up his part of the lesson, he also reminds us of one last thing, and that is that this work now of Jesus Christ is really deep and complete and all comprehensive. You know, as human beings, we are filled with two kinds of sin, actual and original That's at least the terms that the theologians have coined. When we talk about original sin, we are referring to all the baggage that we inherited from Adam. And which fundamentally explains why we don't always think right, speak right, or act right. And then there are those actual sins or that that kind of stuff that we do wrong every day. When we fall short, when we miss the mark, when we... Make a mess of things. You see, we got baggage. You and I have all kinds of baggage. 
We got old baggage. We got new baggage. We got ever increasing baggage. It doesn't stop. We live in a society that produces all manner of pollution. But we are a mankind as well that's ever pollution producing. But then, echoing the scripture, the teacher says, never mind. Because your Savior now takes care of both. He deals with the rotten daily stuff, and he deals with the rotten ancient stuff all the way back to the beginning with his innocence and perfect holiness. He covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. All the way back to my beginning. Actual sin, original sin. He takes care. Of it all. So that you and I can be completely without sin. In God's sight. One day we're all going to stand before the throne of God. And if we're in Christ, no one's going to be able to bring any of the old cows out of the ditch again and polish them up and blame us for them. And you know that happens all the time in this life. People, they say they forgive, but they don't forgive. They always dig up the old stuff over and over and over again. It's never gone. But the scripture says with Jesus Christ, if it's gone, it's gone. It's no longer there. You don't have to worry. And isn't that a fantastic blessing to embrace? We all have to deal with our sins. And the guilt and the shame and the discomfort that comes from them. But thanks be to God. We have a Savior. Like us, more than us. And he cleans us whiter and cleaner than tide. We have this wonderful Savior who scrubs us to the core of our being, our hands, our feet, our hearts, our souls, and who then dresses us in the white sparkling robes of redemption. And isn't that something? I'd say, by all means, be awestruck by mountain scenery and by music. And, of course, by the birth of a new baby. But there is a sense in which all of us should be even more awestruck by this precious, priceless Savior who is both our God and our brother. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.